when Shandor discovers some disturbing clues, the only answer is a Hungarian duel on horseback. Morris Yokai, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you. We really try to make your support worth your while. For a $5 monthly donation, you get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook download. Give more and you get more. It kind of cracks open the website for you, so you can easily build out your classic audiobook library. And you help to give more folks like you the chance to discover the classics in a curated and easily accessible format. Go to classictalesaudiobooks.com today and become a financial supporter. You'll be glad you did. Thank you so much. We've got a new title available for pre-sale. The Black Tulip by Alexandre Dumas. A prize of 100,000 florins is offered to the person who can produce a perfectly black tulip, a feat considered impossible in 1642. But at the very moment when Cornelius van Berl is on the brink of achieving the impossible, he is imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit. The story of his black tulip's journey is absolutely riveting and an event you don't want to miss. Coupon codes will not be available for this title. Once we meet a certain threshold, we will release this title for coupon code use and send it out to our retail partners. But for now, this title is exclusively available at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. Be the first to listen to this tender leaf of historical fiction. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and reserve your copy of The Black Tulip by Alexandre Dumas. Last week, Ferco drove the herd of cattle to jump off the ferry as they were crossing the river. Let's see how that works out for him. And now, The Yellow Rose, Part 3 of 3 by Morris Yokai. Chapter 8 Lucky it is that no one outside the Hortobaj knows about this poor man's peat, which is gathered on the meadowland. One thing is certain. It is no lily of the valley. It is the sole fuel of the Pusta herdsman. In fact, a sort of zoological peat. We remember the tale of the Hungarian landowner who, finding it advisable to go abroad after the revolution, chose free Switzerland as a temporary place of residence but his eyes never grew used to the high mountains. Every evening, on withdrawing to his room, he would take a piece of peat found on the pasture, and laying it on the hearth, kindle it. Then, as he sat with closed eyes in the smell of the smoke, he would once more fancy himself back on the wide, wide plains, among the moving herds and tinkling cowbells, and all the rest for which his soul longed. 
Well, if this peat smoke can exert such a strong influence on an educated mind, how were it possible to doubt the following story? The travelers had to wait two more days at the Polgar Ferry. On the third, about midnight, the ferryman brought the glad tidings to the expectant crowd, whose patience and provisions were alike exhausted, that the taste had fallen greatly. The ferryboat had been replaced, and by morning they would be able to cross. Those with carts lost no time in running them on board and arranging them side by side. Next they took the horses. Then came the turn for the cattle. Room was made for them with difficulty. The crush was great, but mild after all, to what theater-goers usually endure. Last of all, the bull, the terror of everyone, was brought. And now no one remained but the herdsman and his horse. The two Moravian drovers took their places between the cows and the carts. But as yet no start could be made. The tow-rope was strained taut by the water, and they were obliged to wait till the sunshine could relax it somewhat. Moisture was rising like steam all along its surface. So the cowherd, wishing to utilize the time, suggested that the ferryman might cook them a paprikash of fish. Nothing else eatable was to be had, but a pot was at hand, likewise plenty of fish, left by the receding waters. The boatman caught them by sticking an oar under their gills, fat carp, silurius, and sturgeon. These they hastily cleaned, cut up, and cast into the pot, underneath which a little fire was kindled. Now all was ready, when the question rose, Who has paprika? Every ordinary self-respecting Hungarian carries his own supply in his knapsack. But after three days' famine, even paprika will give out. Nevertheless, no paprika, no fish stew. I have some, said the cowboy, and pulled a wooden box from his sleeve. Everyone noted what a far-seeing man he must be to reserve his own paprika for the last extremity, and henceforth regarded him as the savior of the party. The stew-pot was in the end of the ferry-boat, and to reach it the herdsman traversed its whole length, the cattle being stationed about the middle. But then who cares to let his box of paprika out of his own hand? While the ferryman was busy seasoning the fish with the red pepper, Oaken, writing about it, calls it poison, but that some wild tribes dare to eat it, the cowboy took the opportunity to drop his piece of peat, unobserved, into the fire. I say that paprikash must be singeing. What a smell it has, remarked the cobbler presently. Smell? Stink, I would call it, corrected the itinerant cloak vendor. But the heavy, greasy odor affected the noses of the cattle more markedly. First, the bull grew restless, snuffed in the air, shook the bell at his neck and lowed then lowering his head and lifting his tail, began to bellow dangerously. At that the cows got excited, capered to and fro, reared up on each other's backs, and jostled to the side of the ferry-boat. "'Mother Mary, Holy Anna, protect the ship!' shrieked the fat soap-maker. "'Hurry up, mistress, seat yourself opposite. That will steady her again,' joked the shoemaker. But it was no joke. Every man on board had to clutch the rope to keep the ferry-boat from tilting over. The other side dipped nearly to the water. 
suddenly the bull gave a bellow and with one great bound jumped into the river. Another moment and every one of the four and twenty cows had followed him over the edge. The ferry was just about halfway across. Turn back! Turn back! screamed the Moravian drovers as the cattle swam straight towards the bank they had left. They wanted the ferry boat to return instantly, that they might go after their beasts. The devil a bit of turning back! shrieked the market folk. We must cross! We are late enough for the fair as it is! No need to howl, lads, said the herdsman with exceeding calm. I'll bring them to their right minds. He jumped on his horse, led it along to the end of the ferry, and sticking spurs into its sides, leapt over the rail into the water. See, the cowherd will overtake them, no fair. So the cobbler assured the despairing drovers. But the horse-cooper, left behind on the bank, for he had not managed to find room for his horses on board, nor had wished to frighten them among so many cattle, was of a contrary opinion. You'll never see more of that herd, he yelled to the travelers on the ferry boat. You may whistle for them. There goes that Jonah again. Where is there a ham bone to shoot him with? stormed the cobbler. The herd neared the bank in straggling order, and reaching the shallows, waded out to dry land. The herdsman was behind, for cattle swim faster than a horse. When he too landed, he undid the stock whip from his neck and cracked it loudly. There, he's turning them, said the market people to console the drovers. But the cracking of a whip only serves to make cattle run on the faster. The passengers found much exercise for their wit in this cattle incident. The ferryman assured them with oaths that it was not the first time by any means that it had happened. Beasts brought from the Hortobaj so often were assailed by homesickness that no sooner was the ferry boat put in motion than they would turn restive and spring overboard, swim to the bank, and run back to the pusta. Men have the same love of home and country, said the gingerbread man, who, having often read of it in books, recognized the complaint. Ah, yes, exclaimed Mistress Pundor. No doubt the cows have gone home to their little calves. That was a mistake, to separate the children from their dear mothers. Now my idea is different, said the cobbler, who was nothing if not skeptical. I have heard often enough that those cunning betyars, when they want to scatter a herd, put some grease in their pipes. The beasts, when they smell it, go stark staring mad, and scuttle away in all directions. Then it is easy enough for the betyar to catch a nice little lot for himself. Now I sense something of the sort in this business. What, you smell something, Daddy, and you don't run away from it? Everyone laughed. Wait a bit, just you wait till we get on shore, said the cobbler. The Moravian drovers, however, saw nothing laughable in the vagaries of their herd, not even matters suitable for a discussion on natural history, but began howling and lamenting like burnt-out gypsies. The old ferryman, who talked Slav, attempted to console them. Now don't howl, lads. Nisty cat. He's not stolen your cows, the good herdsman. Those two letters, D.T., on the copper plate at the side of his cap, don't mean dastardly thief, but debrits in town. He can't run off with them. 
When we come over again, they'll all be standing there in a group. He'll drive them back, sure enough. Why, even his dog went after him. But when we take the cattle on board again, we must fasten the cow's tree together and tie the bull by the horns to that iron ring. It will be all right, only you must pay the passage money twice. A good hour and a half elapsed before the ferryboat reached the other bank, unloaded, reloaded, and returned to the Hortobaj side of the river. Then the drovers ran up the hill to the ferry house and sought their cattle everywhere, but none were to be seen. The horse dealers said that the angry beasts had galloped madly past towards the brushwood and had quickly disappeared among the willows. They did not go towards the high road, but ran downwind, heads to the ground, tails up like beasts attacked by a plague of flies. A belated potter, coming up from Uivarosh with a crockery-laden cart, related how somewhere on the pusta he had met with a herd of cattle with which a horseman and dog at their heels had dashed roaring along towards the Zam Hills. Coming to the Hortobaj River, they had all jumped in, and he had lost sight of both rider and cows among the thick reeds. The ferryman turned to the gaping drovers. Now you may howl, countrymen, he said. Chapter 9 The Ohat Pusta is the pasture ground of the mixed stud. From the corral in the center, all round to the wide circle of horizon, nothing can be seen but horses grazing. Horses of all colors, which only the richness of the Hungarian language can find names for. Bay, gray, black, white-faced, piebald, dappled, chestnut, flea-bitten, strawberry, skew-bald, roan, cream-colored, and what is rarest among foals, milk white. Well does this variety of shade and color deserve to be called the mixed herd. A gentleman's stud is something very different. There only horses of one breed and coloring are to be found. All the horse owners in Debrecen turn out their mares here, where, summer or winter, they never see a stable, and only the head chikosh keeps account of their yearly increase. Here, too, the famous pacers are raised, which are sought for from afar. For not every horse can stand a sandy country. A mountain-bred one, for example, collapses if it once treads an alfuld road. Scattered groups are to be seen grazing industriously round the stallions, for the horse is always feeding. Learned men say that when Jupiter created Minerva, he cast this curse on the horse that it might always eat, yet never be filled. Four or five mounted chikosh watch over the herd, with its thousand or so unruly colts, and use their thick stock whips to drive back the more adventurous. The arrangement here is the same as with the cattle herd, the karam, or shanty, kitchen, wind shelter, and well. Only there is neither barrow boy nor poor man's peat, nor protecting watchdog, for the horse cannot endure any of the canine tribe, and whether it be dog or wolf, both get kicked. 
noon was approaching, and the widely scattered troops of horses began to draw towards the great well. Two carriages were also nearing from the direction of the Hortobaj Bridge. The head Chikosh, a thick-set, bony old man, shading his eyes with his hand, recognized the newcomers from afar, by their horses. One is Mr. Mihai Kadar, the other Pelikan, the horse-dealer. I knew when I looked in my calendar that they would honor me today. Then is that written in the calendar? asked Shandor, the herdsman, surprised. Yes, my boy, everything is in Chatai's almanac. The Onod cattle market is on Sunday, and Pelican must take horses there. His prognostications were correct. The visitors had come about horses. Mr. Mihai Kadar, being the seller, and Mr. Samuel Pelican, the buyer. Surely everyone can recognize Mr. Mihai Kadar, a handsome, round-faced man, with his smiling countenance and waxed mustache, and figure curving outwards at the waist. He wore a braided mantle, a round hat, and held a long, thin walking stick, the top carved to represent a bird's hat. His was the group of horses standing beside the pool, with the roan stallion leading them. Samuel Pelican was a bony individual, with a large, crooked nose, long beard and mustache, his back and legs somewhat bent from continually trying of horses. There was a crane's feather in his high, wide-brimmed hat, his waistcoat was checked, his jacket short, and his baggy nankeen trousers tucked into his top boots. A cigar case was pushed into his side pocket, and he carried a long riding whip. These gentlemen, leaving their carriages, walked to the karam and shook hands with the overseer who awaited them there. Then an order was given to the herdsmen, and they all went out to the herd. Two mounted chikosh, with tremendous cracking of whips, rounded up the lot of horses, among which were Mr. Kadar's. There were about two hundred colts and all, some of which had never felt the hand of man. As they drove them in the long curved line before the experts, the horse dealer pointed out a galloping roan mare to the herdsman on the grass at his side. I would like that one. Thereupon, Shandor Dechi, casting aside jacket and cloak, seized the coiled-up lasso in his right hand, wound the other end round his left, and stepped towards the advancing herd. Swift as lightning, he flung out the long line at the chosen mare, and with mathematical precision, the noose caught its neck instantly, half-throttling it. The other colts rushed on neighing. The prisoner remained, tossed its head, kicked, reared, all in vain. There stood the man, holding on to the lasso, as if made of cast iron, and with his loose sleeve slipping back, he resembled one of those ancient Greek or Roman statues the horse-tamers. Gradually, in spite of all resistance, and pulling hand over hand, he hauled in the horse. Its eyes protruded, the nostrils were dilated, its breathing came in gasps. Then, flinging his arms round its neck, the chikosh whispered something in its ear, loosened the noose from its neck, and the wild, frightened animal became straightway as gentle as a lamb, readily resigning its head to the halter. They fastened it directly to the horse-cooper's trap, 
who hastened to reconcile his victim with a piece of bread and salt. This athletic display was three times repeated. Nor did Shandor Dechi once bungle his work. But it happened the fourth time that the noose was widely distended and slipped down to the horse's chest. Not being choked, it did not yield so easily, but commenced kicking and capering and dragged the Chikosh at the other end of the line quite a considerable distance. But he put forth his strength at last and led the captive before his owners. Truly that is a finer amusement than playing billiards in the bull, said Pelican, turning to Mr. Kadar. Well, it's his only work, returned the worthy civilian. The horse-dealer, opening his cigar-case, offered one to the herdsman. Shandor Dechi took it, struck a match, lit up, and puffed away. The four raw colts were distributed round the purchaser's carriage, two behind, one beside the near, and the fourth beside the off-horse. "'Well, my friend, you're a great strong fellow,' observed Mr. Pelican, lighting himself a cigar from Shandor's. "'Yes, if he had not been ill,' grumbled the overseer. "'I wasn't ill,' bragged the herdsman, and tossed back his head contemptuously. "'What on earth were you, then, when a man lies three days in the Mata Hospital?' How can a man lie in the Mata Hospital? It is only for horses. What were you doing then? Drunk, said Shandor Dechi, as a man has a right to be. The old man twisted his mustache and muttered, half pleased, half vexed. There, you see these betyars? Not for all the world would they confess anything had ailed them. Then the time for payment came round. They settled the price of the four young horses at eight hundred florins. Mr. Pelican took from his inner pocket a square folded piece of crocodile leather, this was his purse, and selected a paper from the pile it contained. There was not a single banknote, only bills, filled in and blank. I never carry money about me, said the horse dealer, only these. They can steal these if they like. The thieves would only lose by it. Which I will accept, said Mr. Kadar in his turn. Mr. Pelican's signature is as good as ready money. Pelican had brought writing materials, a portable inkstand in his trouser pocket, and a quill pen in his top boot. We'll soon have a writing table, too, he remarked. If you will kindly bring us your horse here, herdsman. The saddle of Dechi's horse came in very handy as a table on which to fill in the bill. The herdsman watched with the greatest interest. And not alone the herdsman, but the horses also. Those same wild colts which had been scared four times, and from whose midst four of their comrades had just been lassoed, crowded round like inquisitive children, and without the slightest fear. It is true Mr. Mihai Kadar was bribing them with Debrutsen rolls. One dapple bay actually laid his head on the dealer's shoulder and looked on in wonder. None of them had ever seen a bill filled in before. It is probable that Shandor Dechi expressed the silent thought of each when he inquired, Why do you write 812 florins 18 kreutzers, sir, when the price was settled at 800 florins? Well, herdsman, the reason is that I must pay the sum in ready money, 
worthy Mr. Kadar here will write his name on the back, and then the bill will be endorsed. Tomorrow morning he will take it to the savings bank, where they will pay out eight hundred florins, but deduct twelve florins, eighteen kreutzers, as discount, and therefore I don't require to pay the money for three months. And if you do not repay it, sir? Why, then they will take it out of Mr. Kadar. That is why they give me credit. I see. So that is the good of a bill of exchange? Did you never see a bill before? asked Mr. Pelican. Shandor Dechi laughed loud, till his row of fine white teeth flashed. A chicoche and a bill. Well, your worthy friend Mr. Fercolazza is quite another gentleman, and he is only a cowherd. He knows what a bill means. I have just such a long paper of his, if you would like to see it. He searched among his documents, and holding one before the chicoche, finally handed him the paper. The bill amounted to ten florins. Does Mr. Pelican know the cowboy? asked the astonished chicoche. As far as I know, you do not deal with cattle, sir. It is not I, but my wife, who has that honor. You see, she carries on a little goldsmith business on her own account. I don't meddle in it at all. About two months ago, in comes Mr. Ferko Latza with a pair of earrings, which he wants gilded, very heavily gilded, too. Shandor started at that as if a wasp had stung him. Silver earrings? Yes, very pretty silver, filigree earrings, and the gilding came to ten florins. When done, off he went with them. They were certainly not for his own use, and as he had no money, he left this bill behind him. On Demeter Day, he is to meet it. This bill? Shandor Dechi stared blankly at the paper, and his nostrils quivered. He might have been laughing from the grin on his face, only the writing shook in his two hands. He did not let go of it, but grasped it tightly. As the bill appears to please you so well, I will give it you as a tip, said Mr. Pelican, in a sudden fit of generosity. But ten florins, sir, that is a great deal. Of course, it is a great deal for you, and I am no such duffer as to chuck away ten florins every time I buy a horse. But to tell the truth, I should be glad to get rid of the bill under such good auspices, like the shoemaker and his vineyard in the story. Is there something false in it, then? No, nothing false. Only too much truth, in fact. See, I will explain it to you. Please look here. On this line stands Mr. Ferenc Latza, and then comes Residence, and after that Payable Inn. Now, in both places Debretsin should be written— but that idiotic wife of mine put Hortobaj instead, which is true enough, for Mr. Ferko Latza does live on the Hortobaj. Had she written Hortobaj in, even, I should have known where to find him. But how can I go roaming about the Hortobaj and the Zampusta, searching the carams of goodness knows how many herds, and risking my calves among the watchdogs? I have fought with the woman quite enough about it. Now at least I can say I have handed it over at cent per cent interest, and we will have no more rows. So accept it, herdsman. You will know how to get the ten florins out of the cowboy, for you fear neither himself nor his dog. Thank you, sir. Thank you very, 
very much. The Chikosh folded up the paper and stowed it away in his jacket pocket. The young man seems deeply grateful for the ten florin tip, whispered Mr. Kadar to the overseer. Generosity brings its own reward. Mr. Mihai Kadar was a great newspaper reader and took the Sunday news and the political messenger, hence his lofty style of speech. That hasn't much to do with his gladness, growled the overseer. He knows well enough that Ferko Latza went off to Moravia last Friday. Small chance of seeing him or his blessed ten florins again. But he is glad to be clear about the earrings, for there is a girl in that business. Mr. Kadar raised the bird's head top of his cane to his lips significantly. Aha, he murmured. That entirely alters the case. You see, the boy's my godson, and I'm fond enough of the cub. No one can manage a herd as he does, and I did my best to free him from soldiering. Ferko is the godson of my old friend, the cattle overseer, and a good lad also. Both would be the best friends in the world, if the devil, or goodness knows what evil fate, hadn't thrown that pale-faced girl in between them. Now they are ready to eat each other. Luckily, my old friend had a capital idea, and has sent Ferko to be head herdsman to a Moravian duke. So peace will once more reign on the Hortobaj. Shandor guessed from the whispering that it was of him they were talking, and turned away. Eavesdropping is not congenial to the Hungarian nature. So he drove the herd to the watering place, where the other horses were already assembled. Five herdsmen there were, three well poles, one thousand and fifty horses. Each chikosh had to lower the pole, fill the bucket, raise the bucket, and empty it into the trough, exactly two hundred and ten times. This is their daily amusement, three times repeated, and they certainly cannot complain of lack of exercise. Shandor Dechi let no one notice that anything had gone amiss with him. He was merry as a lark, and sang and whistled all day long, till the wide plain resounded with his favorite song. Poor and nameless though I be, my six black horses I'll drive along. My six black horses are good to see. The Pustalad is ruddy and strong. First one, then another Chikosh caught up the air, filling the whole Pusta with their singing. The next day, he seemed just as gay, from dawn till dark, as good-humored, in fact, as one who feels himself fay. After sundown, the herds were driven to their night quarters near the Koram, where they would keep together till morning. Meanwhile, the boy brought the bundles of cherokee, that is, downtrodden reeds, which served to light the herdsman's fire and to warm up his supper in the kitchen. Very different is the cowherd's meal to that of the chikosh. Here is no stolen mutton or pork, such as the chikosh of the stage love to talk about. All the swine and flocks pasture on the far side of the Hortobaj River and it would be a day's journey for the aspiring Chikosh, desiring of bagging a little pig or yearling lamb. Neither is there any of the carrion stew, 
known to and spoken of by the cowboy. The overseer's wife in the town cooks provisions for the herdsmen enough to last a week. As to the fare, any gentleman could sit down to it. Sour rye soup, pork stew, Calvinistic heaven or stuffed cabbage, larded meat. All five chicoche sup together with the old herdsman, nor is the serving lad forgotten. A herd of horses differs from a herd of cows after nightfall. Once the cows have been watered, they all settle down in a mass to chew their cud. But the horse is no such philosopher. He feeds on into the night, and as long as there is moon, keeps munching grass incessantly. Shandor Dechi was in a gay mood that evening, and as they sat round the glowing fire, he asked the overseer, Dear Godfather, how comes it that a horse can eat all day long? If the meadows were covered with cakes, I could never go on stuffing the whole day. Well, Godson, I can tell you, only you must not laugh. It is an old tale that belongs to the days when students wore three-cornered hats. I had it from such an ink-slinger myself, and may his soul suffer if every word of it be not true. Once upon a time there was a very famous saint called Martin. He is still about, only nowadays he never comes to the Hortobaj. We know he was a Hungarian saint too, because he always went on horseback. Then there was a king here, and his name was Horse Marot. They called him that because he once managed to cheat St. Martin of the steed which used to carry him about the world. St. Martin was his guest, and he tied up his steed in the stable yard. Then one morning early, when St. Martin wanted to set off on his travels, he said to the king, Now, give me my horse and let me start. Impossible, said the king. The horse is just eating. St. Martin waited till noon. Then he asked for it again. You can't go now, said the king. The horse is eating. St. Martin waited till sunset then urged the king once more for his horse. I tell you, you can't have your horse because it's still eating. Then St. Martin grew angry, cast his little book on the ground, and cursed the king and the horse. May the name of horse stick to you forever. May you never be freed of it. But may the two names be said in one breath. As for the horse, may it graze the livelong day, yet never be filled. Since then, the horse is always eating, yet never has enough. And you, if you don't believe this story, go to the land of make-believe, and there on a peak you will find a blind horse. Ask him. He can tell you better, maybe, seeing he was there himself. All the Chikosh thanked the old man for the pleasant tale. Then each hastened to find his horse and to trot away through the silent night to his own herd. Chapter 10 It was a lovely spring evening. The sunset glow lingered long in the sky, till night drew on her garment of soft, fleecy mists lying all round the horizon. The sickle of the new moon grazed the Zam Hill, with the lover's star shining radiant just above. That star which rises so early and sets so soon. 
Some distance from the herd, the Chikosh sought out a resting place for the night, and there carefully unsaddled his horse and removed the bridle from its hat, hanging it on his stick, rammed into the ground. Then he spread the saddlecloth over the saddle. This was his pillow, his covering the embroidered sur. But first he broke up some bread, left from his supper, and gave it in his hand to the horse. Now you may go and graze also, little Vidam. Vidam means gay and lively. You do not feed all day long like the others. You are always saddled. And yet after you have been ridden the whole day, they want to put you to the machine and make you draw water. Well, they can wait. Do they fancy that a horse is as much a dog as a man? Then he gently wiped the horse's eyes with his loose sleeve. Now, go and search out good grass for yourself, but don't go far. When the moon has sunk, and with her that shining star, then come back here. See, I don't tether you like a cowherd does, nor shackle your feet as peasants do. Tis enough for me to call, Here, Vidam, and you are here directly. Vidam understood. Why not? Freed from saddle and bridle, he gave a jump, kicked up his hind legs, threw himself on the ground, and rolled over and over several times with his heels to the sky. Then regaining his feet, he shook his mane, neighed once, and started off for the flowery pastures, snorting and flicking his long tail to keep off the humming night insects. The Chikosh, meanwhile, lay down on his grassy bed. What a splendid couch! For pillow, the wide circle of plain, and for curtains, the star-strewn sky. It was late already. Nevertheless, the earth, like a restless, naughty child, refused to slumber yet. Could not sleep, in fact. Everywhere there was sound, soft, indistinct, and full of mystery. The pealing of bells from the town, or the barking of dogs with the cattle were too far away to be heard here. But the bittern boomed among the reeds hard by, like a lost soul. The reed warbler, the nightingale of the marsh, gurgled and twittered, with thousands of frogs to swell the chorus. And through it all came the monotonous clack of the Hortobaj mill. High overhead sounded the mournful wail of flights of wild geese and cranes, flying in long lines, scarcely to be distinguished against the sky. Here and there a dense cloud of gnats whirled into the air, making a ghostly whirring music. Now and then a horse neighed, poor lad. Formerly, your head would hardly touch the saddle before you were fast asleep. Now you can only gaze and gaze at the dark blue sky overhead and the stars, whose names your old godfather taught you. There in the midst is the pole star, which never moves from its place. Those, too, are the herdsman's team, while that, with the changing color, is the eye of an orphan maid. The brilliant one just over the horizon is the reaper's star. Still the wanderer's lamp is brighter. Those three are the three kings that cluster the seven sisters, 
and the star which is sinking into the mist is called the window of heaven. But why look at the stars when one cannot speak to them? A heavy load weighs down the heart, a cruel wound makes the soul bleed. If one could pour out the bitterness, if one could complain, perhaps it might be easier. But how vast is the pusta, and how void. The shining star set, also the moon. The horse left the pasture and returned to its master. Very gently he stepped along, as if fearing to wake him, and stretching out his long neck, bent his head over him to see if he slept. No, I'm not asleep. Come here, old fellow, said the Chikosh. At that the horse began to whinny joyously and lay down near his master. The herdsman raised himself on his elbows and rested his head on his hand. Here was someone to speak with, an intelligent beast. You see, he said, you see, my vidam, that is the way with a girl. Outside gold, inside silver. When she speaks the truth, it is half false. When she lies, it is half true. No one will ever learn to understand her. You know how much I loved her. How often I made your sides bleed as I spurred you on to carry me the quicker to her. How often I tied you up to the door in snow and mud, in freezing cold and burning sunshine. I never thought of you, my dear old horse, only of how I loved her. The horse seemed to laugh at the notion of not remembering. Of course his master had done so. And you know how much she loved me? How she stuck roses behind your ears, plaited your mane with ribbons, and fed you with sweet cakes from her own hand. How often she drew me back with her kisses, even from the saddle, and hugged your neck that I might remain the longer. Vidam answered him with a low whinny. Certainly the girl had done all that, till that confounded beggar slunk in and stole half her heart. If he had but stolen the whole of it, taken her to himself and gone off with her, but to leave her here, half a heavenly blessing and half a deadly curse. The horse evidently wanted to comfort him and lay his head on his master's knee. Strike him, God! muttered the Chikosh in an agony of grief. Do not leave the man unpunished who has plucked another's rose for himself. Did I kill him? I know his mother would weep. The horse lashed the ground with his tail, as had his master's rage been transmitted to him. But how can I kill him? He is over the hills and far away by now, and you are not able, my poor Vidam, to fly all over the kingdom with me. No, you must stay here with me in my trouble. Nothing Vidam could do indeed could alter the situation. So he signified his acquiescence in the harsh decree of fate by lying down and stretching out his great head and neck. But the Chikosh would not let him turn his thoughts to slumber. He had yet something to tell him. A smacking of the lips, very like a kiss, aroused the horse. Don't sleep yet. I'm not sleeping. We'll have time enough some day when we take our long rest. Till then we'll keep together, we two. 
Never shall you leave your master. Never will he part with you. Not though they offer him your weight in gold, my one faithful friend. You know how you caught hold of my waistcoat and helped the doctor to lift me up from the ground when I lay on the pusta as good as dead, with the eagles shrieking over me? You seized my clothes with your teeth and raised me, you did. Yes, you know all about it, my darling. Do not fear. We will never cross the Hortobaj Bridge again. Never turn in at the Hortobaj Inn. I swear it, here, by the starry sky, that never, never, never will I step over the threshold where that false girl dwells. May the stars cease to shine on me if I break my word. At this great oath, the horse stood up on his forefeet and sat like a dog on his hindquarters. But don't think we will grow old here, went on the Chikosh. We are not going to stick forever on this meadow land. When I was a little child, I saw beautiful tree-color banners waving, then splendid hussars dashing after them. How I envied them. Then later, I saw those same hussars dying and wounded, and the beautiful tree-color flag dragged through the mire. But that will not always last. There will come a day when we will bring out the old flag from under the eaves and ride after it, brave young lads, to crack the bones of those wicked Cossacks. And you will come with me, my good old horse, at the trumpet's call. As if he heard the trumpet sounding, Vidam sprang up, pawed the turf with his forefeet, and with mane bristling and head erect, neighed into the night. Like the outposts of the camp, all the stallions on the pusta neighed back in answer. There will put an end to this business. There will heal the sorrow and the bitterness, though not by shedding tears, not the poisoned glass of a faithless maid, nor her more poisonous kisses will destroy this body of mine, but the sword thrust of a worthy foe. Then, as I lie on the bloody battlefield, you will be there, standing beside me and watching over me, till they come to bury me. And as though to test the fidelity of his horse, the lad pretended to be dead, threw himself limply on the grass, and stretched his arms stark and stiff at his sides. The horse looked at him for a second, and seeing his master motionless, stepped up with his ears flattened back, and began rubbing his nose against his master's shoulder. Then, as he did not move, trotted noisily round him. When the clatter of hoofs still failed to waken his master, the horse stood over him, fastened his teeth in the cloak buckled over his shoulders, and began to lift him, till at last the Chikosh ended the joke by opening his eyes and hugging Vidam with both arms round his neck. You are my only true comrade. And the horse really laughed, bared his gums to express his joy, and pranced and capered like any foolish little foal, in his high joy at finding that this dying was only mere fun and pretense. Finally he lay down and stretched himself on the grass. Now he was cheating his master and pretending to be dead, 
Now the herdsman might talk to him and smack his lips all in vain. The dam would not budge. So when the Chikosh laid down his head on the horse's neck, it did very well as a pillow. Vidam raised his head, saw that his master was asleep, and did not make a move till break of dawn. Even then he would not have stirred, had not his ear been caught by a sudden sound. Giving a loud snort, he woke his master. The Chikosh jumped from his couch, and the horse stood up. Day was dawning already and in the east the sky was golden. In the distance the dark form of an approaching horse was visible through the shadowy mist. It was riderless. This is what Vidam had sent it. It was probably a strayed animal, escaped from some herd. For in springtime, when the fit seizes them, the cowboys' horses, weary of their lonely life among the cattle, and if only they can succeed in breaking their tether, will run, following the scent, to the nearest stud. There a fight takes place that usually ends badly for the intruders, who are not even shod as are the other horses. So the runaway would have to be caught. Hastily bridling his horse and throwing the saddle on his back, the Chikosh held the lasso in readiness and galloped towards the ownerless steed. But no lasso was needed for its capture. As it neared, it headed of its own accord straight to the Chikosh and gave a joyful neigh, to which Vidam responded. These were old acquaintances. Now what can this mean? exclaimed the herdsman. Surely this is very like Ferko's white-faced bay. Yet that must be in Moravia. His wonder increased when the two horses meeting exchanged friendly grunts and began lovingly snuffing each other's chests. It is Ferko's horse. There are his initials, F.L., and for stronger proof, here is actually the scar of the kick it got as a colt. The bay had brought the rope along with it, also the peg, which it had torn from the ground. How come you on the hortobodge, eh, Whiteface? asked Shandor, while the runaway let him catch it, easily enough by the halter, still knotted to its head. Whence come you? Where is your master? But this horse was not in sympathy with him, and did not understand his questions. What can one expect of a horse that spends its life in the company of cattle? The Chikosh led his captive to the corral, and there shut it in. Then he recounted the affair to the overseer. But as the day advanced, so too did light break on the mystery. From the Zampusta came the barrow boy, tearing along in such a hurry that he had even forgotten his cap. He recognized Chandor Dechi from afar and made straight for him. Morning, Chandor Bachi. Bachi, uncle, is a title of respect applied to one's elders. Did the bay come here? Yes, indeed. How did it get loose? Had a mad fit. Nayed the whole day. When I tried to groom it, nearly knocked out my eyes with its tail, then broke loose in the night and went off with the halter. I've been looking for it ever since. Where is its master, then? He's still sleeping. The exertion has quite knocked him up. What exertion? Why, what happened three days back? What, you've not heard of it, Shandorbachi? How the cows, 
that the Moravian gentry bought lost their heads at the Polgar ferry and slap, bang, bull and all, jumped over the side of the ferry boat and tore straight home to the Zamherd. The cowboy could not turn them. He was obliged to come back with them himself. So Ferko Latza is at home again? Yes, but a little more, and the overseer would have killed him outright. No, I never heard the overseer curse and swear as he did that evening when the herd came rushing over the pusta, Ferkobachi at their heels. The foam dripped off the horse, and the bull's nose was bleeding. The air was just thick with devils and dams and gallows trees. He raised his stick twice to strike the cowboy too, and it swished through the air. Tis a marvel he did not beat him. And what did Ferko say? Nothing much, only that he couldn't help it if the beasts chose to go mad. You have bewitched them, you devil, said the overseer. Why should I do that, says Ferkobachi. Why? Because you've been bewitched yourself first. That yellow rose has given you a charm as she did to Shandor Dechi. Then they began talking about you, Shandor Bachi. But what I could not hear because they sent me off with a box on the ears and pray what was I listening for? It was none of my business. So they spoke about me, did they? And about the yellow rose? as if I knew or cared about their yellow rose, but this I do know. This last Friday, when they drove off the cows, Ferkobachi went into the shanty to fetch his knapsack, and there he pulled out a colored kerchief from his sleeve, and in it a yellow rose was wrapped up. He snuffed at it and pressed it to his lips till I thought he was going to eat it. Then he unpicked the lining of his cap, pushed in the rose, and put it on his head again. Perhaps that was the charm. The Chikosh, swinging the loaded end of his cudgel, struck a yellow mullen standing in his path, scattering the blossoms far and wide. What harm has the poor king's candle done you? asked the boy. But the intent of the blow had been in another direction. And now what will happen? questioned the Chikosh. Well, yesterday the Moravian drovers turned up on foot, and they discussed the matter with the overseer. So now the cows are to be driven towards Tisafured, and all their calves with them, for over the bridge they surely can't jump. They say the cows ran back to their calves, but Ferkolatza only laughs to himself. And will Ferkolatza go with them this time? Apparently, since the master never gives him a moment's peace. But the cowboy doesn't want to clear out just yet. He says the cattle must have a day or two breathing time after their race, and he himself sleeps the whole day like a log. Well, it is no joke to gallop from Polgar to Zampusta at one stretch. So the overseer has granted him two days' rest. Two days? Two? Surely that is overmuch. I don't know. But I do. Or else the two days will lengthen into a rest much longer. Well, I must hurry and get the bay home before they are up, because when the overseer swears at the herdsman, then the cowboy vents all his rage on me. Just wait till I'm a herdsman, and then I'll have a barrow boy of my own to knock about. God bless you, Shandorbachi. He has done that already. The little lad jumped on the bay, bareback as it was, and stuck his naked feet into its sides. But the bay absolutely refused to stir, turned suddenly right round, and tried to return to the stud. Finally the Chikosh, taking pity on the boy, brought out his stock-whip, caught it a good thwack in the hind-legs, and cracked it two or three times, whereupon the horse, 
lowering its head, set out full tilt over the pusta, as straight as it could go. The boy had hard enough work to keep his seat, clutching the mane with both hands. The chikosh, meanwhile, was quite clear as to his own course. Tell Ferko Latsa that Shandor Dechi sends him his respects, he shouted out after the vanishing Taligash, but whether the boy heard this message is doubtful. Chapter 11 Next day the Chikosh went to the Karam and said to the head herdsman, I have some business on hand, godfather. May I take a half-holiday this afternoon? By evening I will be back. Certainly you can have leave, my son, replied the old man, but on one condition. You are not to enter the Hortabaj Inn. Do you understand me? I give you my word of honor not to put a foot inside the Hortabaj Inn. Very well. I know you will keep your word. But this the Chikosh had omitted to add, unless I am carried in on a sheet. It was a hot, sultry afternoon when he started. The sky was the color of buttermilk, and the air charged with moisture. The play of the mirage seemed specially fantastic. Not a bird sang overhead, but all sank nestling in the grass. On the other hand, the swarms of horseflies, gadflies, and midges appeared more wickedly inclined than ever, and the horse could only get along slowly, having to drive off bloodthirsty torments, now with its hind foot, now with its head. Still it never missed the path, though the bridle lay slack between the Chikosh's fingers. Man, too, feels the approach of a storm. Suddenly, as they reached that substantial triumph of Scythian architecture, the Hortobaj Bridge, the Chikosh started. No, no, he cried. Here we can't go, old fellow. You know how I swore by the starry heavens never to cross that bridge again. But never to ford the Hortobaj River was not included in his oath. So he turned down below the mill, and where the water widens into the shallows, waded easily across. The horse had to swim a little, but the herdsman took no heed of that. His fringed linen trousers would soon be dry in the hot sunshine. Then he trotted on to the Hortobaj Inn. Here the horse tried to go at a brisker pace, whinnying joyously the while. A glad neigh answered it, for there, tied up to an acacia, stood its comrade, the white-faced bay. Properly speaking, the Hortobaj Inn has no courtyard, for the wide grassy expanse fronting house, stable, and sheds is without fence of any sort. Still it serves as such. A table is put there, and two long benches, where the customers sit tippling under the trees. The Chikosh sprang from his horse and tied it up to the other acacia, not that same tree to which the white-faced bay was tethered. A couple of long-eared steeds were also meditating in the shade of the garden paling, stretching out their necks for the overhanging sprays of barberry, just out of their reach. Their riders were seated at the table, under the acacia, with their fur-lined bundas slung over their shoulders, inside out, despite the sweltering weather. 
In fact, they wore them for shade. As they tippled away, drinking cheap acid stuff out of green glasses, they hummed an endless shepherd's song, monotonous and wearisome. Both were shepherds, whose steed is the donkey. Shandor Dechi sat down at the further end of the bench, placed his cudgel on the table, and studied the glittering clouds looming heavy on the horizon and the dark rim of earth beneath. A great yellow pillar rose swirling in one quarter, the whirlwind. Meanwhile, the shepherds sang. When the shepherd takes his glass, sad and mournful grows his ass. Cheer up, little donkey gray, behind the flock we'll ride away. This was too much for the Chikosh to stand. See, that's enough, Pishta, he snapped. For goodness sake, stop that doleful ditty. And get on your great donkey and trundle after your flock before you're too tipsy to move. Dear, dear, Shandor Dechi does seem upset today. I'll upset you worse if you try aggravating me, said the Chikosh, and rolled up his shirt sleeves to his elbows. Now he was ready for anyone who crossed his path. The shepherds whispered. Well, they knew the Pusta rule that when a Chikosh sits at a table, a shepherd may only squat down there with his express permission. If he says get out, why then the shepherd has to go. One of them rapped on the table with the bottom of his glass. We had better pay. The storm is coming. The innkeeper's daughter came out at the sound. She made as if she did not see the Chikosh at all, but attended to the two shepherds counted up the wine, gave them back the change out of their dog tongues, and wiped the table where wine had been spilled. They mounted their donkeys, and being once more in full security, rattled on with their song defiantly. Wolves all fear my dogs so strong. Two lads lead the flock along. I, why I ride all the day on my little donkey gray. Only when they had quite taken themselves off did the girl address the Chikosh. Well, haven't you even good day for me, my dearest treasure? Shandor Dechi is my name, growled the herdsman savagely. I beg your honor's pardon. Won't you please step into the taproom, sir? Thanks, I'm well enough out here. There you would find fitting society, so I see by the horse. He'll come out to me soon enough. Well, what can I bring you? Red wine? White wine? No, I won't drink wine, said the Chikosh. Bring me bottled beer. Bottled beer cannot be poisoned. Once the cork is drawn, it all froths out. The girl understood the insinuation. Crushing down the bitterness in her heart, she soon returned with a bottle, which she placed before the lad. What's this? he cried. Am I a cobbler's apprentice to have one bottle brought me? Very well, sir. Please don't be angry. I'll bring more directly. This time she came back with a whole bundle and set all six in a row before him. That's better, said he. Shall I draw the cork? Thanks. I can do it myself. He took the first bottle broke off the neck against the edge of the table 
and poured the foaming beer into the tall glass beside him. It costs more like this because the broken bottle has to be paid for, but then a gentleman is always the gentleman. The girl moved off airily, shaking her sides flippantly as she went. Her golden earrings tinkled. Her hair was down again, no longer twisted round the comb, and the ribbon ends fluttered coquettishly behind her. As thou to me, so I to thee. The Chico sat quietly drinking his beer, and the girl sang on the veranda, Hadst thou known what I know, or whose sweetheart am I, not alone would I weep, thou wouldst cry. At the fourth line, the door was shut with a bang. By the time she reappeared again, three empty, broken-necked bottles stood on the table. Clary took them, picking up the broken bits of glass into her apron. After the third bottle, the lad's humor had changed, and as the girl fussed round him, he suddenly slipped his arm round her waist. She made no demur on her part. Well, may one call you Shandor again? she asked. You always could. What did you want to say? Did you ask anything? Why are your eyes so red? Because I am so happy. I have a suitor. Who? The old innkeeper at Vervulge. He is a widower with lots of money. Shall you accept him? Why not? If they take me to him, let me go. You lie. Lie! You cover up your lying, and so lie worse than ever, cried the lad. He removed his hand from the girl's waist. Will you drink more? she asked. Why not? But you'll get fuddled from so much beer. Much need of it to quench the fire burning in me. So you give the one in there plenty of strong wine. Heat him up with it so that we may match each other. But she took good care not to tell the one inside about the other out here. The Chikosh took the matter into his own hands. He began to sing, selecting the mocking air with which they are wont to tease the cowherds. Oh, I am the Petri cowboy bold. I guard the herd on the Petri wold. My comrades can go through the mire and snow. I lie on my feather bed. Safe from cold. Well thought. Hardly was the verse at an end before out came his man. In one hand he carried his bottle of red wine, with the tumbler turned over the top, in his other his cudgel. Setting down his wine opposite the chikosh, he next laid his cudgel beside the other one, and then took a seat at the table exactly facing the other lad. They neither shook hands nor spoke a word of greeting. Each gave a silent nod, like two between whom speech is unnecessary. So, you're back from your journey, comrade, asked the Chikosh. I'll be off again directly, if I have the mind. To Moravia? Yes, if I don't change my plans. They both drank. After a pause, the Chikosh began again. Are you taking a wife with you this time? Where should I get a wife? I'll tell you. Take your own mother. She wouldn't give up being a Debretson market woman for the whole of Moravia. They both drank again. Well, 
Have you bidden your mother farewell? Asked the Chikosh. I have bidden her farewell. And squared all your accounts with the overseer? Certainly. You owe nobody anything? What extraordinary questions you do ask, to be sure, exclaimed the cowboy. No, I am not in debt, even to the priest. What does it matter to you? The Chikosh shook his head and broke the neck of another bottle. He wished to fill his friend's glass, but the cowboy placed his hand over it. You won't drink my beer? I'm keeping to the rule. Wine on beer, never fear. Beer on wine, no time. The Chikosh poured himself out the whole bottle and began to moralize the not unfrequent results of beer drinking. See, comrade, he said, there is no uglier sin in the world than lying. I once lied myself, though not in my own defense, and it has oppressed my soul ever since. Lying does well enough for shepherds, but not for lads on horseback. The first shepherd of all was a liar. Jacob the patriarch lied when he deceived his own father, making his hands rough like Esau's. So little wonder if his followers, who keep flocks, should live by lies. It may suit a shepherd, but it is not for a cowboy. The cowherd went into roars of laughter. I say, Shandor, what a good parson you would make. You can preach as well as the Whit Sunday probationer at Balmazui, Varosh. Yes? Well, comrade, maybe you would not mind my turning out a good preacher. But if I turned out a good lawyer, you might care more. So you say you don't owe a crooked kreutzer to any human being, not to any human soul. Without lying, no need for it. Then what is this? This long paper, do you recognize it? The Chikosh pulled out the bill from his pocket and held it before his companion's nose. The cowboy turned suddenly crimson with anger and shame. How did that come into your hands? He demanded angrily, and springing from his seat. Honestly enough, sit down, comrade, said the Chikosh. I am not asking any questions, only preaching. The good man who got this bill instead of money came to our place not long ago to buy horses. He paid with a bill of exchange, and when I asked what it meant, explained mentioned that you knew the use of a bill, and then showed me your writing, complaining bitterly that there was some omission, that it was only made payable on the Hortabaj, and that the Hortabaj is a wide world. So now I have brought you the bill for you to correct the mistake. Don't let a horse cooper say that a Hortabaj cowboy cheated him. Fill in the line, payable on the Hortabaj, in the inn courtyard. The Chikosh spoke so mildly that he entirely misled his companion. He began to think that, after all, nothing was called into question here but the honor of Chikosh and cowboys. All right, I will do as you wish, he said. They rapped on the table and Clarica came out. She had been lurking near the door. Great was her surprise when, instead of witnessing a bloody encounter, she beheld the two young men conferring peaceably together. 
Fetch us pen and ink, Clary dear, they said. So she brought writing materials from the town commissioner's room. Then she looked on to see what would be done. The Chikosh showed the paper to the cowherd, pointing with his finger where and dictating what to write. Payable on the Hortobodge, so much is written already. Now add, in the inn courtyard. Why in the courtyard? inquired the cowboy. Because, because it can't be otherwise. Meanwhile, the storm was nearing rapidly. A hot wind preceded the tempest, covering earth and sky with yellowish clouds of dust. Birds of prey hovered shrieking over the hortobaj, while flocks of swallows and sparrows hurried under the shelter of the eaves. A loud roar swept over the pusta. Won't you come indoors? urged the girl. No, no, we can't, answered the chikosh. Our work is out here. When the cowherd had finished writing, then the Chikosh took the pen from his hand, and turning over the bill, inscribed his name on the back, in big, round-hand characters. Now, what is the sense of you writing your name there? asked the cowboy, inquisitively. The use is, that when the payday comes round, then I, and not you, will pay those ten florins. Why should you instead of me? Because it is my debt, said the Chikosh, and clapped his cap to his head. His eyes flashed. The cowboy paled all at once. Now he knew what awaited him. The girl had learnt nothing from the scribbling nor from the discourse. She shook her head. They were very foolish, she thought, and the gilded earrings tinkled in her ears. This and that and yellow rose they must be talking about her. But the Chikosh carefully folded the paper and handed it to her. Very gently, he spoke. Dear Clary, he said, please be so kind to put this safely away in your drawer. Then should Mr. Pelican, the horse dealer, come in here to dine on his way back from Onod Fair, Give it to him. Tell him that we sent it. We two old comrades, Ferkolatsa and Shanyi Dechi, with our best respects. One of us will meet it. Which time will show. The girl shrugged her shoulders. Funny people. Not a thought of quarreling in their heads, signing their names to the same paper. She collected the writing materials and carried them back to the commissioner's room, at the end of the long pillared veranda. The two lads were left alone together. Chapter 12 The Chikosh quietly emptied his last bottle of beer. The cowboy poured out the rest of his red wine into the glass. They clinked glasses. Your health! It was drained at a breath. Then the Chikosh began. Leaning on his elbows, he remarked, This is a fine large pusta, this Hortobaj. Eh, comrade? Truly it is. I hardly think the desert could have been larger where Moses kept the Jewish people wandering for forty years. You must know best, 
you were always poring over the Bible. Still, though the Hortobodge be so large, there is not room enough on it for both you and me. I say the same. Then let's rid it of one of us. With that, they caught up their cudgels, two oak saplings from the Chot Forest, the club end heavily loaded. Each went to his horse. Cowboys do not fight on foot. When the girl returned from the house, both were in the saddle. After that, no word was spoken. Silently turning their backs on each other, one went right, one left, as if flying before the approaching storm. When there was about two hundred paces between them, they glanced back simultaneously and turned their horses. Then, swinging their cudgels, both lads put spurs in their horses and rushed at each other. This is the duel of the Pusta. It is not as easy as it looks. Fighting with swords on horseback is an art, but the sword where it strikes inflicts a wound not easily forgotten. He who wields the cudgel must aim his blow for the one instant when his galloping steed meets his opponent's. There is no parrying possible, no thrusting aside of the stroke. Who strikes truest wins the day. The two herdsmen, meeting at the cudgel's length, struck at each other's head, then dashed past on their horses. Shandordechi shook in the saddle. His head fell forward from the force of the blow, but tossing it back directly, he straightened his crumpled cap. Evidently his crown had only taken the handle of the cudgel. His stroke had been better aimed. The loaded end hit his adversary's skull, who, turning sideways, tumbled out of the saddle and fell face downwards on the ground. The victor bringing up his horse, thereupon promptly cudgeled his fallen foe from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot, nor spared a square inch of him, for such is the custom. If gentlemen of higher rank would only adopt it, God knows how rare duels would become. Having ended this business, the Chikosh picked up his opponent's cap on the point of his stick, tore out the lining, and found beneath a withered yellow rose. He threw it up in the air, giving it a knock, which sent the petals flying in a hundred pieces and floating like butterflies down the wind. I told you beforehand, didn't I? shouted the Chicos from on horseback to the girl, who had watched this decisive combat from the inn door. He pointed to his mangled opponent. There, take him in and nurse him. You may have him now. A hissing thunderbolt fell before the mill close by. Here was the storm. All round them the sky crashed and crackled. You see, said the girl, had he struck you instead, I would have thrown my own body over you and protected you from his blows. Then you would have known how truly I loved you. The Chikosh put spurs to his horse and galloped off into the storm. Sheets of rain and hail fell in torrents. Thunder crashed with a blinding flash. The girl gazed after the horseman till the storm hid him from view. Once or twice when it lightened, his figure shone visible through the fiery rain. Then she lost sight of it, till at last it vanished utterly.
Perhaps she never saw him again. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Yellow Rose, Part 3 of 3 by Morris Yokai. If you have enjoyed this book, please visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and reserve your copy of The Black Tulip by Alexandre Dumas. It's an enthralling historical adventure you're sure to enjoy. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>